I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Elise Hoag, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, and she joins me to discuss her new book, The Lie That Binds. It's really an incredible book, and it chronicles how abortion rights evolved from being a nonpartisan backburner issue to a central cause championed by conservatives and the radical right. This is really one of those books that I have to read twice. It's that informative. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Elise Hogue. Elise Hogue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So before we jump into your book, I wanted to talk about something because I recently learned that you were from Texas and that really piqued my interest because I'm also from the South. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and I was reading one of your interviews where you'd said that you wanted to leave Texas because you were afraid that you'd be bored. And and that was something that I could totally relate to. <laughs> You know, it was sort of a, um, I knew that there was a big world out there and I wanted to experience it and be challenged in, um, you know, both my own horizons, but also different people and the way different people think and act. And, um, and I am so privileged and grateful to have been able to do that. And, you know, I, ha- I have to admit, and you may relate to this as being from a red state, I have a lot of defensiveness when it comes to people bashing Texas. There are such amazing people. There are such amazing women there and they're doing such good work. And, um, you know, you can't judge us by our leaders. You have to judge us by Robert Jordan and Molly Ivins and Governor Ann Richards and Janice Joplin, for goodness sake. And, (laughs) you know, there's just, and, and that's true. You know, everywhere where there's adversity, there are amazing women trying to make a better future. It's true in Tennessee. It's true in Texas. It needs to be recognized. That is absolutely true. I, you know, I feel defensive about Memphis too. Memphis is amazing. You know, we have Bill Street. You know, there's some things that I wanted to escape too. And like, that's where I connected with you because I was like, yes, I understand that need to escape. But yet, you know, having these strong ties to my hometown. Yeah, it's, I mean, it forms us, you know, and I always say I didn't come from a reproductive rights background. I came to it. And part of that is my experience in Texas and watching Texans and particularly poor people in Texas and rural people in Texas um, being the canaries in the coal mines of these regressive policies that use reproductive oppression um, to disenfranchise people. So, you know, I really love this book because, you know, I've read some bit of this history in different books, you know, over time, and you just put it together end to end so well, right? And I think one of the things about the Republican Party that happens, I think when we have these debates in the media, when people talk about it, is we just accept the Republican Party as is, right? Without kind of thinking about how they got here or the illogic of their kind of overarching philosophy, because a lot of it doesn't really make sense. Right. But, you know, when you read your book, the Republican Party today is not the way that it used to be. Like, it's not recognizable from, you know, what it was like, you know, prior to 1970. Right. You outline how they, how they kind of cobbled together this coalition of these disaffected smaller groups, you know, these Democrats who weren't happy with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and, you know, some religious groups. So what were some of these initial groups in that coalition? Yeah, I mean, I would offer that it was a little bit the opposite, right, that every every political party has factions. There's no question about it. But, you know, as as the sort of book opens, you do see Jerry Falwell Sr., who has subsequently passed, and Paul Weyrich, and a small set of really fundamentalists, they called themselves Dominionists, which means they believe God gave dominion to white men over systems, political, economic, social systems. 
Um, and they are seeing a change in country. Whereas before they didn't have to do very much for white men to be in charge. Um, all of a sudden, the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement is really challenging their total control over power systems in the country. And they mobilized to political action fighting school desegregation. And you know what you see, it's a long book, it's a long story, but what you see throughout the book is that um, an establishment GOP, which you know you still had neoconservatives, you still had um, social liberals and, and fiscal conservatives, they were not finding enough to hang together. And they were like, well, maybe we should let these folks in. People who hadn't been voting, evangelicals were voting all of a sudden. Maybe we should add them. And then there was creep, right? And then they got more and more hooked on a constituency within their electoral coalition that increasingly represented a small, small faction of the country in their views. And they were walking this tightrope. They were making deals with the devil. And they, you know, one of the, I think, important points of the book is that the artifice around abortion, which seemed great to them at the time, and I'm sure we'll discuss that, um, really put them in a bind because it was one place where they were kowtowing to this extreme minority and they knew they didn't have public pain on their side. So it was a constant balancing act. And what ended up happening is these radicals increasingly overtook the party with each subsequent election. And Trump is the ultimate manifestation of that. Is it fair to say that these kind of factions that they cobbled together, the one thing that they had in common, the one thread is that, you know, all of these grievances that they had would you know, if you bought into those grievances, it would in some way hold up this kind of white patriarchal power structure, right? Like if you oh, reject- Oh, 100%. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, it it really, you know, you you look at the convergence of Phyllis Schlafly, who had defeated the ERA, and Jerry Falwell and Paul Weyrich, who had sort of lost on school integration and in courts and in public opinion- and they shared one thing in common, and it's really evident and where we've gotten to today, right, which is very strong commitment to propping up a white patriarchy. Right, exactly. If you were against the Civil Rights Act, perfect, right? If you're against women having freedom and reproductive justice, great, perfect. Come on in, right? Well, and I think what we found, the central lie is that they were ever driven by a moral concern for the outcome of individual pregnancies. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? What they actually found is by making abortion the tip of the spear that they were able to identify a constituency that bought into their control agenda. And this remains true today, that if you look for people who are comfortable with denying women the fundamental right of bodily autonomy with reproductive oppression, You've got people who are actually pretty comfortable with opposing other forms of social progress. And that's true at the grassroots level. That was actually just reconfirmed in a poll in 2019. But it was true when we write about this in the book for the Federalist Society, which obviously is a group that has dedicated itself to capturing the courts in support of this white patriarchal agenda. And they found the same thing, that if they made opposition to abortion, and support for reproductive oppression, a litmus test, that it was a really good sign that the lawyers and judges they were cultivating would stand by the rest of their agenda. Which I have to say, when I was thinking that, I was reading through the book, I was thinking, you know, that is so clever. 
you know, it's, it's not right, but it's very clever, you know, and, and effective. Well, they've been successful. Um, but I think their success relied on three things that are really, really crucial for us to understand in order to fight back. The first is that they banked on deeply seated feelings about women, women who have sex outside of the goal of reproduction and judgment that goes along that. And then, of course, with an overlay of race, um, you know, and and the sort of um stigma of single parenthood in this country, that that would keep the majority who supported legal access to abortion silent because then there was so much there that people were uncomfortable talking about and they were right, right? Our silence is exactly what they banked on. The second piece of it um, is that they actually were willing to use a lot of disinformation and propaganda because again, remember, Abortion was, or I should say legal access to abortion was, is um, very popular in this country. And so what they did was build a lot of fake science, health disinformation, medical disinformation to really scramble the signals and the narrative on that and lean in really, really hard um, to really tell complete medical inaccurate stories about what reproductive health means and is about. And we see disinformation really damaging our culture and our society now. And then the third is they always recognize they didn't have public opinion on their side, always. And therefore, this entire strategy of using abortion as a Trojan horse for their agenda went along with undercutting democracy, whether it was capturing the courts, voter suppression, gerrymandering, it all goes to propping up an agenda that's only supported by the minority. Wow. You know, and you mentioned Falwell, which is a really important character throughout this whole thing, right? Or at least the beginning of it, right? And I think it's really hard for people to imagine that at some point, the religious right weren't really interested in Roe v. Wade. Like this was not on their radar. That was the beginning uh, for me of like, what is going on here? I am from Dallas and a leading <laughs> evangelical pastor at the time that Roe came down was a man by the name of W.A. Criswell. I actually went to grade school with his granddaughter and he released a statement after the court decision came down that said, okay, you know, it seems like what's good for the mother is good for the family. We're good, you know. 1976, three years later, Convention on Southern Baptists absolutely affirmed Roe. Early states to adopt liberalization of abortion were under Republican governors. This was simply not an issue at all much less a partisan issue. They worked really hard to make it that. Yeah, he actually said something like, the life of the mother is more important, right? It was yes. just complete. You can't imagine anyone saying that right now on their side. <laughs> not someone who aspires to power on the right or in the Republican Party, certainly not. Help me with a bit of history here. Like right before Roe v. Wade, who made up the faction that opposed Roe v. Wade? Because in Texas, it was illegal. So what, it must have been tiny. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there was some... Some opposition to Roe, um, but it was pretty small and it was really, really unorganized. Um, it wasn't, you know, it certainly wasn't politicized. Um, and people have, and again, always have had some ambivalence around the idea of ending a pregnancy. It's like this is this is deeply embedded in people's social constructs. However, what people really united around was the idea that life is messy. Things happen, and when they do, it should be up to politicians to decide. It is not a role for government. 
It is an individual decision. And if that decision is to terminate a pregnancy, women and pregnant people deserve adequate, compassionate care. And so there, you're absolutely correct that there wasn't much opposition at all. And in fact, you know, we talk about the Bible Belt. In the book, the Bible Belt was a place where you could actually almost more easily get abortion services than other parts of the country that we take for granted. I'm assuming that's because of, you know, poverty and class differences. Is that true or? I, you know, I don't know that we know why. I think we just used it as a point of evidence that, there was just not a lot of organized public opposition to this. In fact, one of the things we talk about in the book that I think nobody talks about enough is that when this small group of people got together, and as we've talked about, it was later in the 70s, it was long after Roe, one of the things that they actually were concerned about was not Roe, it was the Supreme Court decision that came the year before Roe, which made contraception legal for unmarried women. So all of a sudden, you had um, unmarried women who could have sex without consequence, which was just like, oh, my God, you know, like, <laughs> how dare they, right? Um, yeah. But even more, what happened is that women were no longer leaving the workplace because they were unintentionally getting pregnant. And so they were challenging this white patriarchy, this, you know, in very significant economic ways. Women wanted pay equity. Women wanted access to the C-suite. And by the way, abortion services and being able to terminate a pregnancy is absolutely crucial to everything in your life, your job, your economic security, your education, the family you already have. But contraception has had far more sweeping consequences, positive, for women being able to lead our own lives, right? And so that's really what they objected to. Um, or at least part of what they objected to, but they knew it was too popular for them to take it head on. But every time someone's surprised to hear that someone who is anti-choice, anti-abortion also opposes contraception, because logically that doesn't make sense, right? I have to remind them it's about an ideology, and the ideology is that women should be in control of our own lives. It's not actually, again, this is the lie, it is not a singular objection to abortion as a medical healthcare procedure. So in walks Phyllis Schlafly, right? Mm -hmm. And she is a character, like she takes advantage of this like I've never seen before. Um, so just talk about what she brings to this coalition and how she uses uh, this idea of like performative white femininity um, to this whole thing. I mean, she, she was good at it. Again, you know. <laughs> very good at it. She yeah. was very good at it. And she is one in a long line of white women who have used white femininity to hold back social progress for women writ large and certainly women of color. It's been incredibly damaging to feminist politics. And it is one of the things we hope people walk away from the book with is like, we cannot be divided along racial lines because that is a rep for everyone. But Phyllis Schlafly, Phyllis Schlafly is a woman who desperately wanted to be taken seriously in the right in the Republican Party for her foreign policy credentials. She was a nuclear hawk. She That was her passion. She found that she couldn't, right? Why? It's a boys club. She can't be taken seriously. But what she found is that if she was willing to put a female face on opposition to gender equality, in that case, the Equal Rights Amendment, which was absolutely coasting towards ratification when she took it on, um, that she could be accepted into the club. And she could build power that way. 
And she sold out the rest of women um, for proximity to power and privilege, no question. I think that you know what what is important to understand about Phyllis Schlafly is she too really didn't care that much about abortion at all. She did not fight the ERA having anything to do with abortion. It was all about a women's places in the home and oh my God, we're gonna be drafted. Um, and uh, I always say, you know, if you want a perfect example of how Schlafly is and always was about propping up the white patriarchy, look at her interview shortly before she died, where she was an early endorser of Donald Trump for president. The entire interview, which was on Breitbart News, never once mentioned abortion, but really, really lauded President Trump's what we know to be cruel and disgusting policies on immigration. She thought they were great. And that is like Phyllis Schlafly in a nutshell. You know, I have to look that up. I, I, I haven't seen that. And so here's the interesting thing, the irony in all of this. So she was, and you know this, I'm just you know, just making a statement out loud, just thinking out loud. Like she did all of this for her own power and her own political gain, which she couldn't get a foothold on because of the patriarchy. Isn't that amazing. I know. It really causes you to go, wow, huh. Um, I don't, you know, I mean, look, the story is long or the list is long of white women who are willing to sell out other women and particularly women of color for proximity to power by playing up to the patriarchy. I mean, we saw it just in the most horrific way when Susan Collins chose to be the one who made the speech and cast the deciding vote for Brett Kavanaugh over the cries of so many women in this country. We see it in Kellyanne Conway every single day, but she, there's no question she was the matriarch of that sort of movement in modern times. Yeah. Um, so you recall a conversation in the book where they were trying to think like, you know, what's the, what's the thing, what's the missing ingredient to our, you know, gaining political power here, you know, on the right. And, you know, they settled on abortion. Like it was actually a conscious thing. How do we know that that call happened? Yeah, it's been documented by people who were either on it or told about it. So we took all of our research from primary documents and people have reported on it. Dartmouth professor reported on it. You know, there is no transcript of the call, but there are first person sort of accounts of what happened. Right. That just seems so sinister to me. You're having this conversation. You're thinking like, <laughs> what is it? Oh, let's take away women's bodily autonomy. Half of the half of the, you know, population. You know what's <laughs> interesting to me? So it is sinister. It's also incredibly cynical. Right. It's very cynical. But um, as you know, we get into the modern times and we look at Trump, who nobody assumes holds any kind of deeply held principles around <laughs> these issues, right, is uh, how transactional people who just ultimately believe in male power will be. You know, so it's like, do I think it, Trump is on the record as having supported legal access to abortion? Um, when he was in New York and when he did fundraising, he did a fundraiser for AROL in the 90s, you know, um, he didn't do one, I should say, he attended one, there's records of his attending one, but uh, it was really, really easy for him to sell out bodily autonomy because he just doesn't think that much of women generally, right, and I think that that's what we saw in that conference call as well. 
Yeah, well, he doesn't think that much of just people, just humans, right? I mean, oh, no, really. I mean, he just, yeah, he just right. doesn't. And, you know, I think a lot of people, when we recall who he was in the 80s and 90s, you know, people are surprised. But he just really wanted proximity to power, which is why what he's doing right now is perfect, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit more than that. I mean, I think there is that, that Donald Trump is really cut from the same cloth as Paul Weirich in that he believes in white supremacy and he believes in male supremacy. And so the under, you know, the rest was details. Your position on abortion access, details. The ideology was the same. Yeah. So one of the the, the comparisons you make, which is really apt, um, is how Reagan was the Trump before Trump was Trump, right? <laughs> in relation to the radical right. And he was really an, a central figure here. In the connection between the religious radical right and politics, because before Reagan, I think a lot of establishment Republicans kind of shied away from them, like they didn't fully embrace the radical right or the religious right, and they embraced him. And, you know, this marriage was born. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that as governor of California, he actually signed laws legalizing abortion didn't even cause them to bat night. Right. This is supposedly their central issue. But it didn't even cause them to bat night. He was actually an underdog as a candidate. It was his willingness to, again, align around this agenda that propped up white patriarchy. The details could be worked out. That allowed them to make this alliance. And the ability of the Weyricks and the Falwells to then feed energy into Reagan's campaign that established them as a super dominant force within the GOP coalition. Now, I will say, because we talked about it in the book, that Reagan actually did disappoint them on the issue of abortion because he didn't do much on it. He didn't talk about it much while satisfying them enough on moving the underlying agenda to limit social progress that they kind of stayed silent on it, but then vowed to find uh, someone who would be the whole package later on. Yeah, but, you know, they kind of had a similar relationship with George W. Bush because he was one of those people who was, you know, disappointing to them. Right. But then I think it was his, his second term where he, you know, had a change of heart and he, you know, started talking more about the Bible. Is that right? Well, I mean, I would say they were more disappointed with both senior and junior Bush, senior and junior Bush being Texans as well, um, had a long history of supporting family planning in ways that made the right deeply uncomfortable. And even though junior George W. Bush had had a real conversion when he got sober to a more fundamentalist Christianity than his he was brought up with or his parents held, so that made him a little better. And the politics had changed more, um, and so he was more willing to lean into anti-abortion rhetoric. Um, they never totally trusted him. And I do think this was something that people missed in 2016, believing that Jeb Bush was the presumed nominee as soon as he threw his hat in the ring, is that the part of the party that supported the Bushes, they were really neoconservatives. They no longer were dominant in the party. And because both Bush presidents were so disappointing to the radical dominionist, right, Jeb never stood a chance. And so when Trump, you know, snagged the nomination, I guess I'm just trying to figure out what which direction the relationship went. Were they courting him or was he kind of courting them or was it kind of a dance in both directions? <laughs> you know, that is the one of the central things we talk about in the book. We call it the tightrope, right? Everybody thinks they're playing everyone else. And you've got you've got Republicans who have to run for and win elections who know that the public does not support them. 
on these issues, on issues of abortion access, on issues of contraception. You've got a hardline radical right who has made abortion central to their story and their rhetoric, who believes that they can keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And what you ended up with was this sort of unholy matrimony that absolutely required the Republican Party to undermine our basic tenets of democracy in order to maintain power because they didn't have popular support. So you don't have popular support, how are you gonna maintain power? Voter suppression, right? Disenfranchisement, gerrymandering and redistricting and capturing the courts. And the more aggressively these people courted each other and the more that radical right pushed the electeds to say things that were unpopular, the more they had to double down on undermining you know, basic tenets of democracy in order to keep power. Well, yeah, but, you know, but they must love him because, you know, under Trump, you know, the showman, you know, who has no scruples, like, you know, he started to inject words that hadn't been used before, like execution. Right. Mm-hmm. And infanticide. I mean, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Just, uh, and, you know, I think what Trump showed to them, because there was a lot, a lot of this push and pull and how do we stay balanced on the tightrope and, you know, just in 2012, um, four years before Trump was elected, a Senate candidate in Missouri named Todd Aiken went down in flames when he had been reading for uh, comments he made about legitimate rape and abortion. And it changed not only the trajectory of that race in Missouri, but actually the whole national conversation. And at that time, the GOP operatives were like, oh, my God, we've gone too far. Right, you're not supposed to say the quiet part out loud. Shh, shh, shh. And they brought in none other than Kellyanne Conway to do the boot camp to say to the dude, stop talking out loud about these misogynistic, terrible things. We're gonna lose the women we need. And she crafted this whole like pro-life feminism. If you could see me, I would be doing air quotes around that because I don't believe that's a thing. Um, <laughs> and so they had done all of that. And then all of a sudden, Four years later, you had a guy who was completely unapologetic about all of this. And because he never, ever backtracked, he just kept going. Women should be punished and, um, you know, the wall should be built. And he won. They were like, oh, whoa, we have a whole different permission structure around what we say out loud. And, you know, again, just as Falwell brought a new constituency into politics through fighting school desegregation, what Trump did was bring a new constituency by being overtly misogynist and, and racist. So you had white supremacists being like, here's our guy. We should vote again after decades of not voting, right? You also had these online misogynists, we call them men's rights advocates, MRAs, um, who had previously been satisfied terrorizing and bullying and doxing women online who found in Trump a reason to get politically involved, all converging under the alt-right and Breitbart and Steve Bannon. And that was really like what breathed life into a candidacy that nobody believed had any legs. Yeah, but, you know, he kind of does that with everything, though. Like he does the thing or says the thing that no one thinks 
anyone will ever say, right? He does it with race. He does it with immigration. He does it with abortion, you know, and that's the thing I think that makes him, well, he's not really successful. It's hard to describe like what is actually happening, but you know, I mean, I guess he's surviving. (laughs) And he was successful in that he's the president now. Yeah. Yeah. That was his metric of success, right? His metric of success was getting elected and then continuing to stay in power. And, you know, you, you reference some of the language that he started using around abortion, which was not language that had traditionally been used, execution, infanticide, total disinformation, right? Totally grounded in disinformation, medical and health disinformation, um, and just an unapologetic portrayal of women who choose not to have families as monsters. And we see that impact that Trump has had on the debate not just in the fact that he's president, but you know what I say is pre-Trump, the uh, the anti-choice movement was very, very, very careful to paint women as victims, victims of abortion, right? And that's how we got all of these terrible laws like waiting periods because we can't think unless we have a government mandated timeout or um, mandatory ultrasounds, you know, because oh, we're just kind of befuddled and don't know how to make these decisions for ourselves. So we need all of these things done to protect us. What happened after Trump, and this was a question of style, not substance, believe me, people agree on on substance, is that they were like, oh, wow, we can go further than we thought. So the laws post-Trump paint women not as victims, but as perpetrators. So all through 2019, we tracked these terrible abortion bans and forced pregnancy laws that carry jail time for women, right? Yeah. Allow for police to investigate miscarriages. In my home state of Texas, they held a hearing on capital punishment for women. Oh my God. Um, who seek abortions. And that is very much an impact of Trump leaning into the extraordinary misogyny that paints women as perpetrators, but also his penchant for cruelty. Yeah. But, you know, again, the irony here, and I don't need, we don't need to go into this any deeper, but the irony is that he doesn't care about abortion. Like he just doesn't care about religion or anything. Right. Well, but he's perfectly happy to control and oppress women. And that's, that's the whole point is that's, that's the foundation of this entire moment where we're at in this country. And I do remember this hot Aiken moment. I remember that very, very well. You know, because I was one of the ones that kind of made fun of him, you know, and that statement, just the ignorance of it. But, um, you know, I can't imagine the way that it played out. That that would not happen today. I mean, it's, you know, again, it, I, I think it would be different, but I, I do think there is a growing backlash, right? The Women's March was a growing backlash. The fact that there was such vocal, insane, historic opposition to Kavanaugh, that is growing backlash. Every subsequent election since 2016 has seen tons of turnout from women that make the base of the Democratic Party, particularly women of color, Black women, as well as women absolutely defecting from the Republican Party, right? And again, it is harder and harder to reach the threshold because of voter suppression, which is going to be a massive problem holding a presidential election in the time of COVID. But it doesn't mean that that backlash isn't there. Because I see it every day. Yeah. So, you know, I know you talked about this earlier, but if you could just restate, what is the lie exactly? So what's the lie? The lie is that the current day Republican Party and the quote religious right had ever any investment 
in or moral outrage about individual pregnancies and how they ended. What they actually cared about was propping up control for the white patriarchy, and they found abortion to be a useful device to do that. So understanding what the lie is versus, you know, what what the reality is, understanding that lie, how does that help us turn the ship around? <laughs> well, I, don't know, I think, you know what, people ask me after reading the book, like, what keeps you hopeful? Because it is a really, you know, it's a hard story to read. Um, but what, what keeps me hopeful is the fact that knowledge is power. And what we know through telling the story and researching the story is that they really relied on our silence to be successful. And the silence is breaking. And that gets to the backlash that we've seen in historic proportions since uh, Trump was elected. And shattering the silence is a simple act. Being simple doesn't mean easy, but it is simple. It's not like we have to build something new or, you know, devise some giant strategy. We simply, you know, we simply have to expose and shine a light on their lie and lay it all out there and ask people to choose sides. And I believe that that matters. Yeah, that's so important. Yeah, you're right. Knowledge is power. And it sounds simple, but it's not because when you read this book, this is a book I'll have to read twice because there's just so much information in it to understand what's happened from end to end, right? And everyone should read this book. Um, Well, anyway, Elise Hogue, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for bringing this important book to my library. (laughs) And just thank you for all of your activism. Well, I have loved this conversation, Jen, and thank you for all you do. And thanks for having me on.